Are you enjoying the service? I hope you are. Yeah, good stuff. How many of you caught that there was a, a Franklin Graham led like a, a prayer march at Washington, D.C. yesterday? Anybody catch that? Not a whole lot of news coverage, but great thousands and thousands of people were there. Uh, that's a great shot of it. And one of our own was there. Uh, Stan Clapp was there representing. Notice the shirt. All right, Stan. Yeah, good job. And so uh, just please, just a reminder for all of us to be praying uh, for our country. We're actually in a series going to wrap it up today, My City, My Responsibility. And it's the same kind of thing that we realize that uh, we want to be a positive impact on the world. And so when it comes to our city, hey, that's our responsibility, that we make a positive impact on our world. And, and a lot of times when we look how to do that, we realize that we want to help people. We want to help people. We want to do right by people. And, and then, of course, as believers, the way that we feel like we can do that best is give them the best thing that we have. And the best thing that we have is Jesus, so we want to point them to Jesus. But also on the way, we want to help with other, in other ways as well. That's the best way we can help. But there are a lot of other ways we can help, and so we, we try to focus on all those things. There's actually a passage in Scripture where Jesus speaks to this a little bit. It's in Luke chapter 10. And I want us to, to look at that Luke chapter 10, he records a conversation that Jesus has that I think um, has something to teach us today. And it begins in verse 25, Luke 10, verse 25. Jesus has been teaching, and then a lawyer interacts with him, and here's how it goes. Verse 25 says, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How does it read to you? So Jesus flips it on him. And then he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus replies, and he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself... He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who, who is my neighbor? This is a fascinating story, amazing encounter. And here's what I want us to see today as we work through this. First is the question that we should all ask. Second, the answer we all tend to give. Third, the problem with our answer and fourth, the answer to our problem. All right, can, can we remember that? You know, I just come up with these things. So, hey, let's do that one more time. The question we should all ask, the answer that we all tend to give, the problem with our answer, and the answer to our problem. All right, four things. All right. So first thing is the question we should all ask. This lawyer comes up to Jesus and no doubt this happened several times, actually it's recorded more than one time, in Jesus' ministries that he's asked this question because it is the most important question. What does it take? What must I do? How do I get eternal life? Now, there's a context to all this and that helps us understand it a little bit better. 
Um, this guy, this lawyer, he is an expert in the law, and that's the Jewish law, and that's the Jewish law in the Old Testament. He's a religious scholar. He's an expert in the law, especially the first five bo uh, books called the Torah. And, uh, and so he knows all about the Torah. He's got these books. He knows everything about them. He's an expert, and it's all about morality and how we're to live and what God says is right and wrong, and he's an expert. And during this time in ministry, remember, he has heard about Jesus, obviously knows who Jesus is, and at this time in Jesus's ministry, he's done some things that are controversial that pe for people who focus on the law. For example, Jesus interacts with immoral people. He welcomes sinners to come. At this point, Jesus has already called a tax collector, who are typically hated by the Jewish people, to be a disciple. His, Jesus' followers are not keeping the oral traditions that have been attached to the law. So we're reading about Jesus. Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, but 1,500 years before that was when Moses wrote this part of the law that we're talking about. So over those centuries, from the law to Jesus, they had been, uh, they added to the written law a bunch of oral tradition, a bunch of do's and don'ts, a bunch of things you can't do, can't, and all this stuff that wasn't exactly in the law. And so now, Jesus' disciples aren't keeping those oral traditions. So no doubt, the lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks this question and probably because he's an expert in the law, he wants to know if the way to eternal life is going to be through the law. The way to eternal life is going to be keeping the law. Is Jesus going to stick with the law? Is he going to say keep the law? Or is he just going to say kind of follow me kind of a deal? So that's why he's asking. That's kind of the, the background of what's going on. And so the, the, he asks Jesus what do I need? And this is kind of ironic because he's worried Jesus won't hold the law to the high standard. But we'll find out through this passage, Jesus holds the law to the highest standard, higher than the lawyer, higher than anybody. But anyway, we'll find that out. But so he asks the question, then Jesus traps the lawyer by asking him a question back. Now, anytime Jesus traps somebody in a question, it's always for their benefit. It's always to help them see something that they're not seeing. So then Jesus flips the question around and he says, well, what about you? And then he gives the lawyer a kind of a hint with this uh, interesting wording because Jesus is going back beyond the oral tradition. Notice how he says it. And he said to him, what is written, what is written, in the law. How do you read it? Here Jesus is giving this guy a hint to the answer because the answer is in the written law, not in oral tradition. So he's helping him with that. But he flips it on him and then the lawyer gives Jesus a good answer. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. But what I want to focus on right now is just, hey, this is the most important question. It's the most important question in the first century when this lawyer asked Jesus and several people asked Jesus that. But it's the same Today, it is the most important question today. The most important question in our life is how do we have eternal life when this life is over? How do we be right with God? What will happen when this life is over? What's on the other side? These are questions that I've asked many people in our community. What, what do you think? I'll strike up a conversation and if it gets on death or health or sometimes I'll just say, well, what do you think's on the other side? 
What do you think is going to happen when this life is over? And a lot of times people don't know how to answer that. Sometimes they say, well, I don't really know, or I, I think this. But if anybody says heaven, or, or a lot of people say, well, I hope there's a heaven, and I hope I get to go there. And then I'll say, well, how do you get there? How do you have eternal life? And then a lot of people then, they, they sort of answer with, um, you know, th that we have to be good, which I'm going to get to in just a moment. But here Jesus ask this guy the question. So we always ask this question, but what if it was flipped? What if Jesus is asking you, how would you answer this? How, you know, what does it take to have eternal life? So Jesus flips it, the most important question, the question we should all ask. And now we're going to hear the answer that we all tend to give. And, and we hear this guy, he does it in his way. He does it probably better than we do. The lawyer answers, by accurately summing up the law. So Jesus asks him, well, how do you, what do you think? How do you think to get eternal life? And he's an expert in the law, so he would say, what's well, these first five books? But it would take him hours to quote these first five books or read the first five books. So what they're all looking for is a summary. And so you could summarize that maybe in one of the books, Deuteronomy, or you can further cut that down maybe to the Ten Commandments, or this guy cuts it down even shorter where he basically says, love God, love people. And that's an accurate summary of the law. He says, well, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. So he answers that way, which is a great answer. Then Jesus says, Okay, good answer, great answer. Do that and you'll live. Do that and you'll have eternal life. And then, and then he leaves, it's like, yep, yeah, good answer, do that and you will live. And then silence. He just lets it hang there. And then what, what happens? The lawyer says, well, the lawyer, he realizes he's been trapped. It's his answer but the lawyer realizes this is not easy to do. So he immediately realizes that he has to justify himself, is what it says in the text, that he has to figure out how can I make this manageable? How can, so I just said, love God with everything and love your neighbor like yourself. So then, and Jesus says, yeah, that's it, go with that. And he says, well, well who's my neighbor? And he, he asks that question to justify himself. Justify himself just means so he could see himself as righteous. To justify yourself is you do something to make yourself feel or to help yourself see yourself as righteous. And that's what he's trying to do here. And we have people here, it's the, we do the same thing. How do, how do people answer this question today? We tend to justify. If I, so I'm talking to somebody and they say, well, I hope there's a heaven. And they say, well, how do you think they'll get there? A lot of times, some people just say, I don't know. Or they'll say, it'd be arrogant to say that you knew. But most people just say, well, be good. To be a good person. To do the right thing. And I think you'd go to heaven. You know, and that, that's a, a pretty good answer. Well, I, I think we should be good. Do good. Say the right thing. And and then they'll say, because, and a lot of times people are saying that because they know something about the Bible, and so that's what the Bible says. Be good. If you're good, you'll go to heaven, which is incredible because that's the opposite of what the Bible says. 
The Bible says we're all supposed to be good, but none of us are good. The Bible says none of us measure up to God's standard. We've all failed. We can't do it. We can't be good like God wants us to be good. We aren't good. Nobody's done it except for Jesus. We can't do it, which is interesting. So that, that brings in the whole thing. No one's, because the, the Bible teaches you no one's good enough. And then that's the problem with our answer. That's what the, see, we all tend to answer the best question, the most important question, the question we should all ask, how do I get eternal life? The answer we all tend to give is an answer that justifies ourselves. We tend to say, hey, we give an answer, but the problem with our answer is just that. It just, it's trying to justify ourselves. We really don't measure up. And the lawyer, he senses that his answer is a problem. And so he tries to justify himself. He's trying to pair this, his own answer, he's trying to get Jesus to pair this down small enough, who's my neighbor, to get that down to as few people as possible so he can actually perform what he said it took to go to heaven. Who's my neighbor? Who, who is it that I must love as myself? And so Jesus answers him. Now, when Jesus answers him, Jesus uses a three-guy story, and we have three-guy stories today. We, usually they're jokes. Hey, three guys walk into a bar. The first, you know, three guys are on an airplane, and they say, you know, we have three guys. Well, Jesus uses this three-guy story, and a three-guy story, it always has two guys set the expectation, and then the third guy, there's always a twist, or that's where the punchline is, or the joke, or the teaching moment, and that's what Jesus does. He uses a three-guy story. Now, and so we're going to pick that up in the next verse, in verse 30. Before I do that, there's a little bit of context you need to understand. The road, he's going to talk about somebody being on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a, a dangerous road. I think we have a picture up here, perhaps, maybe. You know, it's, it looks like this. And it, it's a barren place. It was notorious that travelers were ambushed here. There were all kinds of caves and gullies and ravines where robbers could hang out. And it was just, even a few centuries ago, it was still notorious for being a place where bad things happened. But anyway, so picking it up, here's the story Jesus tells, because that comes into play. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and all his listeners go, oh, bad place, tough road. And fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, hey, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Then Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And so the lawyer has to answer, verse 37, he said, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. By the way, this is not 
what the lawyer wants to hear, this kind of, but did you catch the twist? Did you catch the three guy thing? You know, two guys. First guy comes by, he's a priest. He's a Jewish priest. He's supposed to help people do good, but he goes on the other side, meaning he stayed far away he could on the path and gets around him. Then another guy comes along, he's a Levite. He's supposed to represent God and all that. And he, same thing. Skinny's on the road, keeping, him, keeping it as far away from this guy as he can to pass by. But then a Samaritan, this is the twist. A Samaritan, by the way, Samaritans and Jewish people didn't get along. We've talked a little bit about that before. But a lot of, you know, Jewish people didn't think well of Samaritans. Samaritans might even feel, some of them, that they were oppressed by Jewish people. A Samaritan's on the road. And all of a sudden, the Samaritan starts meeting his every need. He, I mean, this guy's alone. Nobody will help him. He doesn't have a chance. And he meets his emotional need. This guy sees him, cares for him, meets his physical need. He gives him whatever medical aid he could, which is disinfecting the wound with oil and wine. That's what they had back then. And then he gives the guy transportation. He throws him up on his own mount and then probably then walks him all the way to Jericho. When they get there, he gets an inn. He uh, cares for him all night long, trying to help him, feeds him, gives him shelter. And then in the morning, when the guy has to go on his journey, he, he lays out some cash and says to the innkeeper, hey, keep this guy here. That's probably a couple of weeks worth of cash and keep feeding him and caring for him. And if he, he stays longer than we think, next time I'm in town, I'll settle up with you and I'll make it right. So he does all that. And the, the flip here is that the Samaritan who was looked down on, he's the hero of the story. He's the one who does it. And the lawyer didn't want to hear that because the lawyer wants this neighbor to be, fine, to be defined as narrowly as possible. And here Jesus says, neighbors, anybody who comes in contact. The Samaritan is the neighbor to the Jewish person who basically oppresses him. All right. And we do the same. And so it's getting hard for this lawyer to justify himself because that didn't help. And we do the same thing today. We try to justify ourselves. We justify ourselves today by convincing ourselves in our mind that we're living good lives. And it's good according to our own standard of goodness, which is a problem because that's not objective, right? And we all have different standards. Actually, only God can define good. Only our creator, somebody outside of us, can objectively define good. Because if we all just define good for ourselves, number one, it's, it's, you're going to have a thousand different answers. But not only that, we're going to define good as something that we do. Because we want to be thought of as good. We want to justify ourselves. So we'll define good in a way that is convenient for us as something we do. And, you know, and we live in a world today, we talk about helping people and we want to help people. The problem is, because we see that as good, the problem is we want to help people as long as it's not too costly or too inconvenient. You know, as long as we don't have to pay or a lot of times we do that by figuring out how to get other people to pay you know, we're helping, but you pay, you, we force them to pay. You know, we do all this stuff. And, and, but we all want to help people. Even non-Christians want to help people. 
But as believers, we're thinking the best way we can help people is point them to Jesus. But that doesn't mean we don't help them in other ways. We do. We, we try to help people in a lot of different ways. Here at Grace, you know, we, we just this year, you know, we're helping refugees on the other side of the world with food and medicine, people who are starving. We've done that several times this year. And people say, well, well you're not doing enough here. Well, and they really don't, but that's maybe what people are thinking. But, well, here we try to help people the same way. I mean, we have re- life support recovery for people who struggle with addictions and, you know, divorce care, people emotionally hurt by that. You know, we try to help women in crisis pregnancies. We do that by partnering with Heartbeat Hope Medical, you know, and try to make all that happen. We have a food pantry. That's this whole, you know, we've been talking about the whole bumper crop thing. That's just where you take a bag this week, bring it back next Sunday, fill the groceries. Somebody collects that while you're in church, and, that fun, and that's our bumper crop that the Hilliers are, are writing point on, and, and we do that, and, and people use that all year long. We do that a couple times. You know, anybody in our community that needs food, we have food for them. And then, of course, we have financial aid. We have counseling. We counsel people free of charge. and We have a care team that takes care of the sick, the elderly, the forgotten, the struggled. You know, we even try to, our care team actually tries to encourage people who actually work in other organizations who help people in our community. You know, so it's just a multi-layer thing. We're trying to do all these things. But we realize the most important thing that we can do to help somebody, to really love them, is to point them to Christ. We do weird things that we don't talk about, just unusual things. Recently, uh, I'll share one. A few weeks ago, we had a, a family connected to our church, and they just kind of got into a jam, which, which happens to families sometimes. They, you know, just kind of evolved into a situation where they were living in a negative value home, meaning uh, you couldn't, you'd have to pay somebody to take it from you because it needed to be torn down kind of a deal. And, and so they couldn't really... Uh, afford to correct that problem and they couldn't really stay there and so they're just in a jam. And So a bunch of our people, our volunteers, some people who had machinery and everything came together we, and we solved that problem. It was a big undertaking. I mean, we knocked down two uh, mobile homes. We packed them all up and took them away and uh, were able to secure another place for them to live and move them into a, a new place and you know, for their whole family, it was just a huge positive thing, a place that they can afford, and everything's good now. Solved the problem. Actually, it kind of looked like this. I think we have some footage of that. stuff, huh? These are people just coming together, making it happen. And we don't talk about some of this. Yeah, you, you can clap if you want. Yeah. We have great volunteers here at Grace. Forrester's writing point on that, did a great job. And a lot of that stuff, we don't talk about some of that so much because we want to protect people's privacy and their dignity and all that stuff. And, but I'm just saying, behind the scenes, we're doing stuff. We're trying to 
change our community. And our reputation is important. Before we did that project, I mean, we spent a lot of time checking with the owner of the property, who was a different than the owner of the, the houses, and making sure that they thought it was a positive, and then the neighbors to make sure it didn't adversely affect any of them. You know, and everybody is like, oh man, if you did that, that would be great, great. That would help us. If you helped them, it would help us. And we got the green light in all those ways, legally and everything else, and then went in there and took care of business with a bunch of, a bunch of people who gave up their time and sacrifice to help somebody. That's how we want to help people. We understand that that's important. And our reputation, we check with those because our reputation is important at Grace. We want people to see us as people who want to help people and actually do, actually sacrifice to make that happen. And by the way, that we check with all those people to protect our reputation, but how that applies to you is if, you know, be protective of our reputation at Grace as we try to connect with people. You know, if you're a social media person and people know you go to Grace, which they should know where you go to church, but be careful how you're interacting. You know, be kind, be gracious. Doesn't mean you don't have an opinion, just in the way you do it, be, be nice. And why do we help people? Because we're all one. We're all one blood. We've all been created by the same creator. We've all descended from, from the same origin. We're all one blood. We're all the same. We all need grace. We all need help. We all need salvation. And God is calling us to help people, to love people. And Jesus wants us to help everyone in our path. And I know sometimes that could be hard. Because I know sometimes we can help people personally and be taken advantage of. And that, that's discouraging. But we understand that happens. We just need to be wise in how we help people. We shouldn't bail on it. You know, so, but we understand, boy, some people, uh, this has probably happened to a lot of you. I, I'm not sure I want to give this person money because I'm afraid if I give them money and they have addiction issues that this may, they may harm themselves or their families. You know, I could cause a tragedy by trying to help, unintended consequences. So we try to be wise. You know, I remember it's the classic example is, you know, a few years ago I was in New York City and kind of walking down a, a block there and there's a guy who was panhandling and he looked like he needed money and I'm thinking, well, Jesus would want me to give him money, but I also think this guy's a drug addict. So I, then I don't want to give him money. So I'm thinking, well, how can I help him? I'm thinking, well, here's a McDonald's right next to us. I was like, you know, I'm not going to give you any money, but I'll, I'll give you some food. I'll, I'll eat lunch with you here. And he's like, yeah, I'll take lunch. And so we go in and eat lunch. But by the way, that is not Jesus's standard. His standard's way beyond that. That was not that inconvenient or costly, right? Jesus's standard's way beyond that. I'm just saying, we try as believers, we try to help people and we try to help them with sacrifice, and we realize there's going to be a cost to it. What Jesus is trying to get us to see that it's impossible for us to justify ourselves. That answer we all tend to give, the problem with it, it doesn't hold up. We're always short of God's standard. And then that brings us to the answer to our problem. We try to justify ourselves. We can't but Jesus has a way. Now, with the lawyer, the lawyer wants to know, what's the minimum here for me to be able to love my neighbor? How narrow can we get it so I can feel good? And Jesus says, it's pretty broad. Love everybody. 
It's really genius how Jesus does this because Jesus could have told the story that there was a Samaritan laying in the road and then there was a lawyer, a Jewish lawyer was riding by and he helped him, but Jesus didn't do it that way. He said, no, there's this Jewish guy in the road and the priest doesn't help him and the Levite doesn't help him and then the Samaritan guy helps him. And what Jesus does there is he forces this lawyer to only be able to identify with the guy ble bleeding in the road because he's not going to identify with the Samaritan. So all of a sudden, Jesus is forcing this guy to see, you need help. You need help. You're helpless. You're bleeding. You need. And Jesus is telling us, hey, don't just love people who can love you back. Love your enemies. His standard is so high. The, the interesting, every time I read this, here's the most interesting to me, is what the guy follows up on. Remember, God says, Jesus says, well, how do you think to have eternal life? And remember the guy says, love God, love people, but love God. I mean, he does a good job with that, right? He's quoting the law. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Can you imagine loving God with our mind 24-7 all the time. Ever spend time thinking about something that doesn't glorify God? That's never doing that. Same way, heart, soul, strength. Love God like that. But it's like the guy thinks he's got that down. So his question is, so who's my neighbor? What? He's missing the bigger question. He's not loving God like he says we're supposed to love God. But we do the same thing. We all need help. That's what Jesus is showing in the story. It's a picture of all of us. And none of us deserve anything from God. You know, that Samaritan owed in the story. The Samaritan doesn't owe the Jewish person anything. As a matter of fact, we'd expect him to resent the, Judas, the, the Jewish person. But he helps him. And God owes not, us nothing. Because God has created us. He's told us right and wrong in the law, revealed that to us, told the whole world through the Jewish people, through his word. And we all keep sinning. We all keep doing things contrary to his law. We, we keep polluting ourselves. We keep dirtying ourselves. We keep walking through life and sin just kind of clings to us. Uh, a lot of you heard I was camping. I think I talked about it last week. And so, uh, so we're, we're camping. Actually, my daughter was with us, so she did a, a time-lapse video. So while I tell the story, you can see a time-lapse video of a sunrise. This is just outside our camper door. So we can roll that, and I'll tell the story. But So there we are. We're we're spending time hiking through the Grand Tetons and Yellowstone. We're getting dirty. We're on the trails getting dirty and grimy all day long. Then we come back here to our campsite, our camper. And then our camper, actually, and we're grimy and dirty. And you feel like, man, I need to get clean. Ever felt that way? You feel like, I need to be clean. I need to get clean. And our camper actually has a tiny bathroom and a tiny shower. I mean, the shower is like this. And I'm thinking, if I, I've never taken a shower in there. I'm thinking, if I take a shower in there, I'm going to strain something just getting in and out. It's not going to be good. You know, your elbows are on the wall. It's terrible. It's tiny, tiny. So 
I'm going to get clean by going in the river. So put on a pair of shorts, walk into the river, find a deeper hole, and then, and this is cold. This is, you know, flowing from the mountains, actually flowing into the Grand Teton National Park. And so we're in there, and then take the plunge. Krista did it too. You know, taking the plunge, and, uh, and then you're hesitant, I mean, because it's cold. You're in the water, and it is cold, and you got to go under. And then, but to go under, it's like you're power washed by this cleansing. No soap or anything, but you're power washed by this cold, refreshing, cleansing. When you come up out of there, and you want to come up out of there, when you come up out of there, every sense is alive. And you feel refreshed and clean. Your hair is clean. I mean, everything. It just power washes you. And then you sleep. Real nice, 40 degrees, you know, then 30, then 20. It's nice. It's good stuff. But anyway, this is what God wants for us. We all walk through life and we just get dirty and muddied and dusty with sin. And sometimes we do it so much we don't even notice anymore. But God is offering us cleansing. And he doesn't give us cleansing by sticking us in some little box and trying to get over some dribble of water. He offers us gushing cleansing, more cleansing than we need to overpower us. He offers us freedom. He offers us a new life. He offers us cleansing and joy and refreshment. That's what God wants for us. But there's only one way to get it, he's saying. We have to first admit our sin. Lawyers have a hard time with this. And some people today have a hard time with this. First thing we got to do is we got to admit our sin. The next thing that we need to do is recognize that Jesus, the teacher here, who's helping us to see this through his story, we can't actually keep the law. But we know by the rest of the New Testament, that's exactly right. But Jesus came to fix that problem. He came as the ultimate answer to our problem. God, eternal God, the Son, comes to earth, clothes himself in human flesh, teaches like he did in Luke 10. But ultimately, his mission was to come to give up his life as the only righteous person the only one who truly is justified in his life. He comes, lives a perfect life with no sin, and then he becomes the only one qualified to pay for our sins. And that's exactly what he did on the cross of Calvary. He allows himself to be tortured to death, put to death in order to pay for Kevin Pinkerton's personal sins and yours too. And the way we get that forgiveness and that cleansing is by putting our faith in Jesus and only Jesus. We admit our sin. We put our trust in Jesus alone. And when that happens, we'll know that we're sincere because we start living to follow Jesus. We turn, it's called repentance, we turn away from our sin with a desire to follow Jesus. None of us do that perfectly, but we want to follow him. And so we demonstrate change in our life. It shows up where people can see it. 
And so the most important question that we should all be asking is how do I have, how can I get, how can I receive eternal life? And the ultimate answer to that is simply that we would put our faith in Christ and Christ alone. And that's a decision that all of us can make. It's the most important decision that any of us will ever make in our lives. And that's what we at Grace, people who have this gift, want others to also receive. And so before we close our service, we actually have an ending song. Um, I want us to just give some thought to this. Have you come to the point in your life where you've stopped trying to justify yourself. So if somebody came to you and said, or Jesus asked you, like he did in the story, well, what do you think it takes for you to go to heaven? How do you know you're going to go to heaven? Or how do you think you'll have eternal life? That never starts with, well, you know, I try to do this and I try to do that. That's how people answer that all the time. That's the wrong answer. Why will I go to heaven? because Christ died for me, because I don't deserve heaven. Christ died for me, and I put my faith in him. And when I do that, God promises me the cleansing, the forgiveness, the refreshment of knowing him, the joy. He gives that to me forever. And I deserve none of it. It's a total gift. And because he's loved me like that in gratitude, I try to follow him with my life. That's the only answer. So before we close, I just want to ask you, where are you? How would you answer that question? And if you don't know, because even in a lot of Christian churches, the emphasis is on what you do. Well, you need to get baptized, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. And somehow that buys you your way into heaven a little bit, part of it. That's partially how you get there. The Bible says no. There's nothing we do. No works of the law. No works at all. There's nothing we can do to earn heaven. It's all a gift. It's all grace. And we receive it when we put our faith in Christ. So I'd like to lead you in a prayer like that. If you don't know for sure that you've trusted Christ alone and that's the only way you're thinking you're going to get to heaven is just Jesus. Not because you're a good dad, a great mom, a good citizen, nice to your neighbor. None of that will get you there. It's faith in Christ because God's standard is so much higher than ours. So I'd like everyone to bow your heads right now. And, uh, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And this is for any of, any of us here, any of you, who think, I'm not sure I've done this. I'm not sure I've put all my trust in only Jesus. Here's your chance. Trust him now. And you can express that trust to him in a simple prayer, something like this. Make this prayer your prayer. You don't have to say it out loud. God knows your every thought. Just express this to God in your faith today, something like this. Father, God, and heaven, I admit that I have sinned against you like everybody else. And, and I know that the whole point of this story is that to not get to heaven means that I'm apart for you, from you forever, and that's what I deserve. But God, right now I'm putting my faith in your son Jesus and him alone for my salvation, that he died for my sins. 
and through him I can have forgiveness and peace and joy and a new life. Lord, come into my life and help me follow you. Help me do life your way. In Jesus' name, amen.